From years of anxiety to warrior and mentor, Bradley Robinson created the Anxiety Project to help you end your anxiety naturally. Let's mold the new you and let's end anxiety together. Hello and welcome to episode 141 of the Anxiety Project podcast. I am Brad Robinson. Today, I have a very special guest on the show. Her name is Emerald Wilkins. She is the host and content creator of her YouTube channel, The Diamond Net. I recommend this channel if you're interested in the shadow, integrating the shadow, ego, ego transcendence, ego repression, trauma, healing from trauma. If you're interested in my content, you will be interested in her channel, so please go check it out. She also has a shadow integration workshop on her website at thediamondnet.org. Go check that out. And I recommend her shadow integration exercise that you can download for free on her website. So go do that after the episode. But before I get into our conversation, which we talked about the shadow, we talked about trauma, healing, and a heightened sense of awareness, that transcendence in this episode. So this is going to be a really powerful one. But before we talk about that and get into our conversation, I want to go over your comments on episode number 140, which was all about the anxiety symptoms, the symptoms that just don't go away. One of the biggest frustrations of health anxiety. Noah says, Love this episode because you describe the fear that I have. It's when that sensation sticks around, I catastrophize over what it could be. You don't know how important this episode is to me. Well, thank you, Noah, for your comment. I greatly appreciate it. Cassie says, when you said that obsessing is a sign of anxiety, my perspective changed. It's like I'm finally finally noticing the giant elephant in the room. Amazing episode. Love your podcast. Great. Thank you, Cassie, for your comment. D. Hoffman says, When I listen to your show, new doorways open up in my mind like I am no longer feeling trapped in a cage or floating out in the middle of the ocean, as you like to put it. Great tools and insight, long-time listener. Well, thank you, D. Hoffman. Thank you, everybody, for your comments. If you want to leave a comment, do so on the YouTube video version at the Anxiety Project YouTube channel, or send me an email by going to the anxiety, unplugganxiety.com, and under contact, send me your comments, or you can just ask me anything. So thank you. I appreciate that. Now, let's get into this episode with Emerald. Here we go. Hi, Emerald. Thank you for coming on my show. I really appreciate it. Hi, Brad. Thank you for having me on. Um, first of all, for those who don't know who you are, can you please just give everyone a bit of your background and what it is that you do. 
Sure. Um, so my name's Emerald. Um, I have a YouTube channel called The Diamond Net. Um, basically, I go over topics that relate to psychology, spirituality, uh, philosophy, uh, really a lot of different topics that kind of fall under those general uh, windows. I'm, I'm also a life coach as well. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. How did you first get into all of this? Did it find you or did you always want to go down this path? So what's interesting is that I've always been one to uh, to be contemplating. So ever since I was a little kid, I always had this habit of contemplation. I was always wanting to think deeply into things and kind of figure things out. And once I hit about 12, you know, these insights started to kind of crystallize for me, but I didn't really have any kind of outlet to share them. And I had always wanted to be like a, a teacher, you know, like a K through 12 kind of teacher. And so I never really considered that I could ever do something like this as a job. Like basically my thought was, oh, maybe one day I'll write all this stuff down in like a diary. And then one person's going to find this diary and be like, oh man. But you know, I didn't ever think that I'd really be sharing. Um, and so basically I had made the dream of becoming a teacher, you know, like happen. And then I ended up losing my job and it ended up just being a nightmare. It wasn't what I liked at all. And I thought, well, what is it that I would really want to do? And I decided to give give this a go. And basically I, I put my stuff out there on YouTube and it didn't happen the way that I thought it would. And so basically I, I put myself out there and it was good because it just created this outlet where I could connect to to other people who were interested in the same thing. And I put aside the thought of like making this my main career. And I was like, okay, well, maybe that was like a pipe dream after all, but I kept posting content and, you know, basically I was able to get quite a few many subscribers. And then eventually I was able to switch to being a life coach. And, and so now this is what I do for a living. So that's kind of, you know, what it was, but it never, like when I first started and all through the, the thing, it was just never like, oh, I can definitely do this for what I want to do. You know, it was always a sense that, okay, this is something to be nice to share, but it, it ended up happening that it snowballed into something. It's basically a way for me to connect with other people who are like-minded. It's a way to share my insights. It's also now it's my full-time job. So, so it's a, a lot of things to me, but yeah, I started with it in terms of the contemplation just as a natural part of my personality. And then I decided to start a YouTube channel back in 2015 because I was like, well, what is it that I really want to do? So that's in a nutshell. So something interesting, there's something interesting you said there where you were posting on YouTube and I know when you first start out on YouTube, it's going to be extremely dead on the channel. What was that drive that was like, oh, I want to post again and then again and then again? Because I know on your YouTube channel, you have so many posts about uh, union psychology and the shadow, ego, anima, animus. There's so much there. What was that driving force? behind all that that was saying, you know, I just want to keep posting, even though you see like five views at that beginning stage. Absolutely. Yeah. So it took me about three months to get my first hundred subscribers. And just for, uh, just for contrast, I have 50,000 subscribers now. So it's, it's snowballed up into a bigger number, but basically it was just, I would get like one subscriber a day. And because I didn't 
like immediately when I started it, I was like, no, this, there's no way that this is going to turn into anything. And so like pretty much within a week, I kind of like put, put that idea aside. And so I was like, you know, I'm just going to keep posting because now I have this outlet to be able to share this part of myself. I haven't shared, but every single time I would get a subscriber, like if I get like the one subscriber a day or one subscriber every two days, I, every time it would be a celebration because I didn't have like, a, Oh, I need to get to a hundred thousand subscribers and look how far I am away from a hundred thousand. It was every single subscriber was like, Oh yes. Somebody liked my YouTube channel, you know? So it, it's just, I think it was the different framing because I've worked with people who have like, you know, basically tried to start a YouTube channel. And one of the things that I tell them will kind of kill that dead in the water is if you have like this big number you're trying to get to and you're always measuring it by that end result. It's really about the process. And again, every single view, every single subscriber at that first period of time is like, yes, every single yeah. <laughs> little celebrations. I think it's also the content when you talk about this these powerful things that we should have learned in school growing up, which we don't, or I certainly, you know, not learning about the shadow or the ego, these parts that are necessary for development. I think that learning about these things and talking about it is also the reason why I keep doing it. You know, like at first, like the first five videos, you're like, oh, nobody's watching it. Right. But for me, I felt like by talking about it, it was like therapy for me. Like I was studying this stuff and I'm like, what's the next video on? Oh, I really want to learn more about this. And so I, I research it and then I improve it. I implement it on myself and then I talk about it as well. So I think that's also part of that process, right? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And it's been my experience that like, because you're basically putting, uh, you become a beacon when you put yourself out there that way that really attracts a lot of people who are kind of on a similar wavelength. And so what it is, is you get to experience a lot of other people who are kind of like mirrors to yourself. And in that way, it's been just an incredible growth experience, you know, just being able to interact with people either online or, you know, over Skype or, you know, whatever it happens to be. And essentially, you know, being able to see somebody who is somewhat like myself, you know, is a, basically it, it, it helps that introspection process and helps that growth process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I really want to talk about the beginning steps of somebody who's really struggling, who's in chaos. And I say all the time on my channel that, you know, it's never mental illness where it's, it's some, there's something physically wrong. It's, it's, it's more of someone's life has gotten so beyond them that they can't get a grip over what's happening. So when somebody comes to you and they're in chaos, they come to you and say, Emerald, you know, uh, there's these things, like, I feel this way. I don't know what to do. I feel trapped. I feel in a cage and I feel lost. What's the starting process with all of that? Gotcha. So I would say it would really vary from person to person. I usually ask a lot of contextual questions to kind of like really get the situation because people can deal with an enormous amount of blocks in any particular direction. But if it is the case that let's say the person is, let's say, becoming overwhelmed by something in their life, you know, basically the very first step is to really take stock of like exactly what's going on, you know, being able to parse out, you know, what's the thing that's actually happening? How is that person thinking? 
thinking about this? Like what meanings are they making in their mind and, and what are, are the feelings that come up in relation to those meanings? And being able to parse out the distinction between what's actually happening and all that thought feeling stew that can happen around it. You know, so that would be really my suggestion there. And I think a lot of the sessions, well, those sessions I do with my clients is I guide them through that process of how they can end up in that chaos. So I want to ask you, because you talk about chaos and order on your channel, the yin and yang symbol, can you describe to those listening uh, what the yin and yang symbol means and the reasons behind chaos and order in that sort of integration? Sure. Well, basically the way that I think about yin and yang in terms of my experiences also in different like plant medicine ceremonies that I've had where I've had direct experience with these two polar qualities is that they're really like two polar energies for want of a better word that coexists in every living and non-living system. So that means that these are going to show up in the microcosm of an atom to like the entirety of the cosmos to the human being to even a machine that works as going to have these two polar qualities for something to both um, exist and have like essentially transformation in motion and be in flux as everything is in flux. It has to have these two qualities. Yeah. And so basically the way I would uh, define yin is something that's being based, you know, it's usually associated with a feminine principle. So it has to do with receiving stillness, essentially existence itself. So it's the substance of what's here. It's like mother nature, you know, that which is matter um, here, you know, whereas the more yang side of things that has more to do with doing. So whereas yin is more like the particle nature of things, yang is more like the wave nature of things. It has to do with movement, transformation, where the yin has to do with substance. The, the yang really has to do with the movement and transformation of that substance. So we could say that yang is like that time element, whereas yin is like the matter element of, of things. And so a good metaphor for how these two things come together would be like if we look at, let's say, the waves in the ocean, right? So the water is kind of like the particle element, the yin element, the substance, whereas the waves, the movement within the water is more like the yang. So that which has animation and movement. And also, I don't know if I had mentioned, I might have forgotten to, but yang is associated with the masculine principle. So, right. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that? Gotcha. In terms of the why, I'm not sure if I could answer really why that is, but it's just been my experience that it is that way. I think for me, um, the yin is order, right? Order, like you could also look at it like the walled city of that, like a God the Father archetype. Um, order. I know that the, the, each archetype, the the feminine and the masculine, there's the two opposing sides. There's the positive side of the great father, but also the devouring side of the great father and like the, the mother, the, the archetypal mother figure, uh, like Mary holding Jesus, that type of image. But then also the, the devouring mother who holds on to her children and keep in in for reasons such as they don't want their children to grow up and leave the nest so to speak and um i heard you talk about on your channel the 
uh, anima and animus integration, the anima being the feminine mm-hmm. part, integrating the feminine mm-hmm. aspect of yourself, and then the animus integrating more of the masculine aspect of yourself. And that's very inter- interesting. Can you talk about um, that anima integration or that uh, animus integration just briefly so everyone can understand that? Sure, absolutely. So the way that Jung defined anima and animus is that the anima is the inner woman in every man and the animus is the inner man in every woman. So in the same way that I had said that yin and yang interplay within every living and non-living system, I think about the anima and animus as kind of like the polar opposite of whatever our primary energy is, you know, just within the human psyche. So in a sense, in the same way that the yin and yang mass and feminine play out on all levels of existence, you know, on uh, basically, you know, even if it's something like the growth of a tree, this is kind of how it applies to the human psyche, you know, very specifically. And so basically, I like to think about it as just having an integration between the masculine feminine side. My experience has been actually, you know, so even though Jung referred to the anima as the inner woman in every man and the inner man in every woman is the animus, for me, what my experience experience has been is that I've had anima issues before because I've had a repression of my feminine side before. And so the way I like to think about it is that this inner um, opposite or even the inner same part is essentially going to be, if it's repressed, there are going to be issues there. So for example, somebody who is only in their masculine and has pushed away the feminine, only in their animus and pushed away the anima, Essentially, it's going to lose touch with the emotions, maybe become quite rigid, you know, unyielding in that way. Somebody who's lost touch with the animus is going to sometimes be swallowed up by the emotions, not being able to parse things out, having indecisiveness and some vagueness. And this will come about, um, you know, basically if anybody has a repression of either of these sides. But it typically comes about that where men tend to have a repressed anima if they have anima issues, and then women have a repressed animus if they have those kind of issues. So, and it tends to present those same types of ways. They're kind of symptoms that show up. Yeah, I... I noticed that within myself, I grew up um, repressing emotion. I, I you, you mentioned in one of your videos with the anima, which was really interesting, it really caught my attention, was that people who aren't integrating their anima tend to view the anima as weak, like emotion, the feminine side, and they want to hold on to that masculine part of themselves and, and say, you know, emotion shows weakness, but it, you know, my, my mentors that I look up to, they are very masculine, but they're also, they also show great emotion, right? And then what's one technique or a technique that you can do to begin to integrate that emotion back into your personality, because I found that to be difficult with myself. Gotcha. So the very first thing that I would do is I would start changing the mental framework around what the function of emotions are. So I remember when I had a repression of my feminine side, what was coming up is that I just thought emotions were something almost like a test, like how, how deeply can you ignore this to show how strong you are? 
you know. And for me, I got a lot of um, a lot of praise for being an unemotional, you know, female. You know, essentially, you know, there was a lot of like, oh, you're not like those other girls. You're, you know, like that kind of thing. And so for me, there was a lot of pride in being unemotional. And it, it kind of come to a, you know, kind of a head when I was, let's say, quite young, nine, ten. And I remember that I had like this almost like this macho identification. And when I was at like summer camp during the summer, I would have like other kids intentionally hurt me by scratching their fingers down my arms. And I would be like, look, I don't flinch it. You know, so so I had this really strong association with feeling and emotion being something of a test of your own um, of your own character. And so how much can I wall off? How much can I prove myself that I am strong? And so, and that was kind of the underlying assumption. Now, it wasn't as strong as it was before. Like it kind of, you know, there were other beliefs that kind of stacked up on top of that when I was a teenager. And essentially I wasn't focused on that. So those beliefs kind of became somewhat unconscious to me, but they kind of played in, in the background. And then what happened when I was 20, I had a couple of awakening experiences where I realized how much of myself that I was cutting away, pushing away, right? So basically from there, it's been, a lot of work on integrating my feminine side, you know, and, and my emotions and that kind of thing. So to kind of circle back around to what your question was about, like what I would recommend is number one, changing that mindset, you know, so seeing the emotions as primarily functional, you know, so instead of seeing emotions as something to overcome or something of an annoyance that's just there, emotions are a play a very important function. Basically, it is the way our body communicates to us what we feel, and it is the heart of where our personal sovereignty actually lies. It's what tell us, it tells us what we like, what we don't like, you know, essentially where our boundaries are. And so we're out of touch with our emotions. We don't really have any ground to stand on in terms of asserting ourselves, asserting our own boundaries, which conversely makes us quite weak in like, let's say even from a masculine principled point of view. And so that's number one. So changing your mindset about the emotions in terms of seeing all emotions as fundamentally functional and there for, for a way that the body can communicate to you as the, you know, as the conscious part of you essentially, so that you can get more information about who you are, what you, what you need, what you like, what you don't like, where your boundaries are. So that's number one. Number two is get in touch with the body. So emotions come up as a feeling sensation in the body. And so you might feel a tightness in your chest. If you feel, let's say some kind of element of grief, or you might feel a dropping in the pit of your stomach. If you feel some fear, you know, so get back in touch with your body because this is where the emotions are. Oftentimes when we feel an emotion, we immediately go up into our mind and in our mind, we're just trying to figure things out and trying to get resolved and trying to get resolved without actually sitting with that sensation in the body. And again, the body is trying to send us a message. And so we're, if we he feel the emotion for a split second and immediately go up here. We're not getting the message the body's trying to send. And so basically we're trying to move forward without getting all of the information. So getting in touch with the body and recognizing that it's actually when an emotion comes up, and I mean any emotion, it's the body communicating to you about what it is that you need, what it is that you want, what it is you don't want, where your boundaries are. Yeah, that's powerful. When I used to suffer from an anxiety disorder, big part of it was there were two fears involved. One was being out in public and the fear of dying, but also the 
fear of making a fool out of yourself while you die, right? Because you go to the mall, you get the the sensations, the panic, the, the strong emotions, and then you want to get out of there as soon as possible. So I was always, when I would be in a situation, say like a classroom, and I would get those feelings of anxiety and panic, one of the biggest, you know, moments, the, the feelings I would get would be, or the thought would be, well, what are people thinking of me right now? I'm acting weird. I'm touching parts of my body. I'm sweating, you know, I'm hyperventilating. And um, so a big part of my recovery was to face those emotions and and ride that wave of emotion. There's a great book uh, by David R. Hawkins called Letting Go, which is really powerful. It, it talks about that feeling where you sit with it, you become aware of it. And what you said was so powerful that, you know, you know, feel it. Right. And when I started to do that, I felt so much better. Like right after I felt empowered. I felt like there's this energy within me that was let go. Um, amazing. And that comes from the unconscious mind, right? The unconscious parts of ourselves. So why is learning about the unconscious mind really important? What is it about the unconscious mind that we really need to know in order to reach our higher selves? Mm, Gotcha. So the way that I think about things is, okay, so the conscious mind and the unconscious mind, the conscious mind, that which comes through in the personality is like a drop in a gallon bucket compared to that which is unconscious about uh, of us that is also ourself. And so the way I think about it is that the conscious mind is a little bit uh, well, I guess the way I would put it is that they work it works in a totally different format to the unconscious mind. So in a sense the unconscious mind is kind of invisible to the conscious mind, hence why it's unconscious. And so basically in order for us to really have touch with that part of ourselves, that deeper part of ourselves that already deep down has that knowing, that wisdom, that Sophia wisdom there with the unconscious, is being able to turn toward the unconscious mind, being able to discern the messages that the unconscious mind sends to us in the ways that it sends it to us via synchronicity, via dreams, you know, and also just being receptive. So the unconscious mind is already uh, very wise in terms of what it wants to steer you toward, to bring you to your point of unfurling your potential and, and becoming more whole as a person. That's really what the unconscious mind is geared toward. And so you as the conscious mind, if you're tuned into it, you're more likely to ride that wave. Uh, whereas if you're not tuned into it, the unconscious mind will be trying to pull you in a certain direction. And it might either not come through at all because you're not lined up with it. Uh, you know, it, it, so out of communication with it essentially or it might have to put you in a situation that like precipitates a crisis to get you to move past where you are you know so the unconscious mind again has this wisdom that the conscious mind just does not have and because the un- because the conscious mind can't directly discern the unconscious mind we have to find ways to tune into that to turn toward it as opposed to being out of alignment with it so so basically that would be my answer yeah, I think knowing about the unconscious mind is so crucial for, especially if you're going through some sort of crisis or chaos. And a lot of people who are going through that crisis and chaos fail to realize because they're doing everything unconsciously that their actions and their, what they're saying every day is 
determining what they manifest in the end. Like, why are these bad things happening to me? You know, why is, you know, life so terrible? They resort to that nihilism in the end and that bitterness and resentfulness. How do they get there? Well, they're not orienting themselves properly, right? They're not aiming in the right direction and tapping into the unconscious mind through just even changing your actions every day is can change that orientation which is so powerful right and what do you think are the the right actions to take to shift that orientation in the right direction what should what would you recommend your clients do when it comes to action-based things throughout the day that they should start to implement Hmm. I suppose the way that I typically orient myself to the unconscious mind is to think about the conscious mind, the part of me that I'm aware of as being always in kind of a dance with the unconscious mind. And so, and also uh, there's a strong belief of mine, I guess belief's not exactly the the right word, but essentially this is the perspective from which I, I look at things through, is that the unconscious mind and reality are, are connected. And so I, the way that I think about it is that everything is kind of an emanation of that which experiences my experience. And so I don't see the internal stuff as separate from the external stuff. So for me, interacting externally with the world and interacting with the unconscious mind, I see those things as deeply connected. And so I'm always looking into my life for synchronicities, things that mirror what the unconscious mind is trying to, to show me, you know, and I could also look at it from another, like, let's say more scientific perspective where it's okay. There's a thing called the reticular activating system that might home in on something that's going on in the unconscious. Or I can look at it more metaphysically where there is that psychic link between the internal world and the external world and things that show up in the external are showing me something. But either way, the the result is the same, regardless of which framework I look through, is that fundamentally reality can be read for the meanings that we project upon it. And those meanings can come from the unconscious mind. And so basically, I like to think about the world as almost being, or my experience of reality as being kind of like a, a big meditation where where the unconscious is constantly sending me messages either internally or externally and it's almost like I have this relationship that I've developed. So I think about it more as a relationship and, and, and really connecting to the intuition and into the emotions that are kind of steering you in that direction. And so I sort of like to think about it as like almost getting in the river. Now, in terms of what you can do action-wise, I think a big part of it, again, is kind of changing around the mind frame in terms of what the relationship between the unconscious and reality is. And then also just being on alert, being watchful, vigilant for things that are meaningful to you, because there's a reason why those things are meaningful to you. So, for example, it doesn't even have to be particularly synchronistic where repeat things are showing up. If you notice that you're watching a movie and there's something that's really resonating with you about the movie or like figure out what that is like what's really resonating with you there is there some kind of concept that's coming through is there is there something about that 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 that's important to you and what's the reason for that to be important to you so everything is essentially a reflection of everything else so i would just say action step wise to constantly be seeing 
everything is a reflection of everything else. And thus the, the unconscious is always reflected externally and internally to you in a variety of ways. So really being watchful and interacting in ways that feel right with those things that get reflected to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely powerful. Uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a great segue or movement towards the shadow because this is something I find to be so powerful, especially those who come to me as clients. They're getting a lot of negative thoughts. They're getting, and they're reactive towards them. I used to be so reactive towards every single negative thought I would get, and I would be so emotionally reactive towards them. I would go out with walks with my family, and I would get thoughts of like them dying, or like, what if they die? What am I gonna do? I was like, why am I thinking these things? And there's a great thing that Russell Brand talked about with throwing the baby. He's like, if you think a thought of throwing the baby, that means you're more in touch with your shadow because you're less likely actually going to throw the baby. Someone who actually throws a baby does it unconsciously, impulsively, anger, you know, they're not, there's no connection with them and their shadow. So I want you to explain more to me about the shadow parts of ourselves. What is the shadow? And, um, and, and how does that relate to the negative thoughts in the dark side of ourselves? Yeah. So, uh, so the first thing I wanted to say is I have, I've had that before in the past, you know, and a lot of it did come from like, just be being very repressive, being very attached to an image of goodness in myself and not wanting to be seen as bad or also just deeper fears of loss and, you know, what that would mean for me and all that. So I can get into that in a second, but basically when it comes to the shadow, Uh, The shadow is part of the unconscious, but again, it is not the whole unconscious, but basically the shadow, think of it as like a container that whenever you experience some kind of trauma or unmet need, or you decide this is me and this is not me, where, where a part of you gets cut off from the conscious personality. So if you think of your conscious personality as a whole thing, part of it gets split off by the internal trauma response that kind of pushes that aspect of yourself and the feelings that that aspect is afflicted by into the unconscious. And so the shadow is the container where all the repressed, rejected, and denied aspects of the self go to where you essentially forget about them. It's kind of like sweeping them under the rug. Now, when these aspects get pushed down into the shadow, they don't go away. Obviously, they're there. They're they're still like, they still have needs. They still have wants. They still have their own agenda. But they act autonomously from the conscious personality. So you could very much want, you know, some some kind of outcome to come about. And your, your shadow aspect that gets pushed down into the shadow might have different ideas. It might want different things. It might have a different agenda. It might actually try to self-sabotage you to get its agenda done. You know, so think about the, the aspects that end up in the shadow are like fragments of yourself, like mini personalities that are an incomplete version of you. And essentially that feels like they're the only thing, you know, so just in the same way that we might see ourselves as separate from everyone else, the shadow aspect sees itself as separate from the conscious personality or the other shadow aspects. It doesn't perceive a connection with the rest of the personality. And so the shadow aspects, again, they have their own agendas, their own wants, their own needs, their own fears, strengths, wisdom, memories, etc. And so when they're down there, 
you know, we don't have access to them and they stay in a state of arrested development for whenever they were repressed, you know, and they're in whatever situation that they were in whenever they were repressed. So for example, if somebody has had a, an experience of trauma when they are five years old, what happens is that part of them bears the brunt of that trauma and that part of them that bears the brunt of the trauma the trauma response internally comes in, splits that aspect off, and that aspect becomes autonomous. And so now this five-year-old has been pushed down to the shadow. You know, So you have an inner five-year-old now that's dealing with whatever the trauma was. So let's just say that the trauma was an abandonment trauma. So you have this aspect that's looping around abandonment, 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 but down in the shadow. So the conscious personality, you're consciously not aware of it until it gets triggered up, until it starts to have some kind of impact on which direction the conscious personality goes. And so what I'm thinking is that when those intrusive thoughts come up, is that that's one of those shadow aspects that are coming up, and a shadow aspect that is perhaps afraid of, of losing people, maybe playing through some past wounds around loss, you know, or something of that nature. So. And, and basically, yeah, so the shadow aspect kind of has their own agenda. They, they kind of act autonomously. And so things can come up like that that are surprising, you know. And also, um, with regard to the thing that you had mentioned, Edgar Allan Poe had a term for that, and it's called the imp of the perverse. So there's a, there's a phrase for it. Whenever you feel that throw the baby kind of impulse, you know, it comes up. And I know for me experiencing that, it was always something like, oh my gosh, I could just totally commit social suicide right now by doing this. Or, oh, if I did this, then it's going to mess things up forever. And so it always had to do with some kind of loss and some kind of fear of loss of reputation or, you know, like it would be like something terrible and it'd be like this really cringy kind of anxious feeling. So yeah, so I can relate to that. I think it's also awareness that helped me overcome the shadow being aware like when a thought would pop in and i still get them and you know everyone does doesn't matter how spiritually awakened you are self-mastery comes with the with the awareness of the thought and and recognizing as it is what it is that's the part that's coming from the dark side of myself and every time that thought would come up and i would be aware of it it would go away and I wouldn't think the thought for the rest of the day, but somebody who emotionally reacts towards it, it'll keep it around. It'll stick around because you're emotionally giving it some fuel to, to stick around. So I, I think learning about the shadow is absolutely crucial. Um, can you talk about a, little, a bit about the shadow integration, recognizing more about the shadow in your own self and how you can fully integrate it. I, I know you do have a, which I did actually, by the way, you have a shadow integration uh, exercise on your website, the diamondnet.com. And I, which I recommend whoever's listening, download it. Um, I did it and I found that to be really useful going into the substructures of your personality. You know, I, when I did the visualization, I, I imagined myself on the planet, which you were describing, and then there was this cabin and then I opened the cabin. You know, I love the forest and I love cabins. So I'm, I, I had a visualization of the cabin. I go in and I see, you know, my fiance and I see like the, my favorite music and everything that makes up my personality. And then I, you know, go down to the substructures. And then if you can talk a little bit about that part, 
which is really interesting. Sure, absolutely. So just to go into that exercise, basically, I like to think about the internal world as a universe unto itself. Um, and so the, the, the practice was basically to imagine yourself and you're in, in a spaceship and you're going to land on a planet. And the planet is a representation of your ego, your conscious personality, what you identify with in yourself, right? And so you go onto the planet and whatever pops up there, you know, just trust whatever your mind is giving you. And then you can see, okay, what's, what's this ego place about? And, and so then you can kind of explore that. And then what you do, once you get, you know, to a certain level of exploration, you find a way to go underground. And when you go underground, that's when you get to the shadow layer. And so the shadow layer is usually going to be a bit different than the ego layer. You know, and so a lot of times, and I've worked with clients with this, you know, with this practice of going into these different layers. And it's really interesting because it's like the the unconscious mind just kind of puts all these symbols there that, you know, can be looked into and explored into, read into for meaning and that kind of thing. So that's one practice for exploring and perhaps even getting in touch with or having some active imagination kind of process where, you know, you're actually engaging with these symbols, you know, so that you can have um, a, an easier time to integrate the shadow. But at the core, with shadow integration, essentially you have four different reasons why the shadow becomes disintegrated in the first place. So the first thing is, um, so basically our ego, our identity, you know, so saying I am this and I am not that, you know, so that's the first reason it becomes disintegrated. The second reason is worldview preservation, which is usually highly related to ego preservation. So for example, let's say that I am the Pharaoh in ancient Egypt, right? So my identity as the Pharaoh is going to be highly contingent upon holding a very specific worldview where the, the position of Pharaoh is something that is important within that cosmology. And there's a certain way that the universe works and there are certain gods and there are certain meanings applied to that position. And so worldview, and not just in that one narrow example, but worldview can often be like something that our ego is contingent upon. So or let's just say that somebody has a certain belief structure, you know, a worldview where uh, meritocracy is really important, you know, so climbing the success ladder. So a lot of times a person's ego structure will be contingent upon them being successful in climbing that ladder, which requires a certain worldview. So these are the two more intellectual reasons why aspects get split away. So if we're highly identifying with something in ourselves and we don't want to see ourselves as the opposite because we maybe judge the opposite as bad or undesirable in some way, we're going to push away any aspect of ourself that doesn't fit to those things, right? And then we also have for um, shadow disintegration for reasons that are more emotional. So the first one is if we experience a trauma. So that's where something or someone goes over our boundaries. We experience a trying situation that gives us a lot of emotions at once that we can't process all at once. And so what happens is the trauma response comes in and the mind and body work together to cut that aspect away from our consciousness, like in terms of it being its own autonomous aspect, as I'd mentioned, but it also represses the emotions that that aspect is having. So it locks those emotions into the body where they don't get processed. And so then you also have 
Um, sort of on the same wavelength as that unmet need-based traumas. So this is where we had a need that we, you know, whenever you have a need, you have to meet it essentially. And whenever we are in a situation where we chronically don't get a certain need met, what happens is that in order to cope with that, again, the trauma response comes in, cuts that aspect away, puts it in the shadow. And then also those feelings of desperation around that need also get pushed to the shadow. So for example, let's say that somebody really needs validation from their parents. Sorry, there are flies flying around me. Yeah. <laughs> let's say that somebody really needs uh, validation from their parents. Right. And so, and they just never get it because the parents are just in a position where they can't give that for one reason or another, usually their own traumas. And so this person, this child, you know, has to go through, you know, that first 18 years of their life without getting that from their parents. And so they have to push away the part of themselves that wants that. And the reason why this happens with the, 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 the repression because of the traumas and because of the, um, of the unmet needs is so that we can focus on what is going well. So the shadow is there for a very important reason. It's a place where we can put aspects of ourselves so that we don't have to feel the suffering that comes along with that or the pain that comes along with that. And we can continue moving through our lives and coping and making do with what we can have at the time. But once we get to a space where it's safe or possible to integrate an aspect, possible to meet those needs out of the traumatic situation, where there's more space and more safety to do that, then we can start the integration process. And the whole integration process is about making a connection between the conscious personality and the aspect that has been pushed down into the shadow. So if we go back to that example of the inner five-year-old that got that pushed away, you know, there has to be a connection, a conscious connection between the conscious personality and this aspect. So you can use many different uh, techniques to do that, including the visualization that I had mentioned. You you can also use active imagination where you go looking for the inner child. You can interact in dreams. You can do meditation. There's a zillion and two processes to do this. But fundamentally, you're trying to make that connection with that aspect of yourself that's been pushed into the unconscious. And again, it's this autonomous aspect that has its own wants, needs, fears. And it's also, if it's in the, the space of trauma or unmet needs, it's gonna be dealing with some pretty intense emotions. In that case, it'll be more difficult maybe to get in touch with it because in order to get in touch with it, you have to feel those feelings, right? So if you have an aspect of yourself that's in grief, you as a conscious personality have to allow yourself to feel grief, to feel emotional proximity with that aspect. And it's only after spending time with that aspect that that emotion can then be processed through, let go of, and then this aspect can come back up to the surface of consciousness and integrated. Now, when it comes to the first two uh, reasons for disintegration, so let's say if we have um, ego, uh, you know, kind of preservation or worldview preservation, and it's kind of like I'm this and I'm not that, a lot of that takes just a change in mindset. Seeing things in such a way where we drop resistance and drop judgment to what we see as opposite to ourself. So, for example, if I really highly identify, and the biggest one is this, is if I highly identify with goodness and I define goodness and badness a certain way, anything I identify as bad or wrong or undesirable is going to go straight into the shadow. And so the best thing I can do for integration there is just changing around those views, expanding out the mind so that that, you know, so that the ego becomes more expansive and more allowing of that shadow material back in. And a lot of times that doesn't even require sitting with very uncomfortable emotions. Sometimes it will because sometimes it crosses over traumas and unmet needs as well. But a lot of times
sometimes it just has to do with being able to be open with ourselves. With the traumas and unmet needs, with the unmet needs, we have to find ways to meet those needs. You know, maybe not through the outlets that the aspect is looking at them through, but we have to find a way to meet them either internally or externally. Whereas with the traumas, we have to be able to sit with those emotions and allow ourselves to process through them. And so that gives kind of a snapshot about how to integrate a shadow aspect. And it's going to be different depending on the reason why it was repressed. And of course, these things can cross over. You could have one that's ego identification, worldview identification. That's all for the reason of protecting some trauma related to unmet needs. So it can be a combination of all four of those. It could be one or two of those. It could be just one of those. Yeah. That's powerful. Thank you. That's... You're welcome. That is absolutely necessary for self-development. A lot of people who experience that PTSD where someone betrayed them, or like you just said, you know, everyone's all good. And you meet that one malevolent person and it just traumatizes them because they have yet to integrate that shadow part of themselves, knowing that you know, it lives within the heart of everybody, but also in in society, everybody has the shadow aspect. Like Carl Jung talks about and coined the, the term, uh, he, he said that everyone's shadow reaches all the way down to hell, which is so interesting. Um, and that we can all slip and get back there because I've gotten to a great place in my life, but I know that if I don't maintain... A meditation routine, if I don't maintain good eating habits or behaviors and actions every day, I know I can slip back into my old ways. I know, and that's really important for people who are seeking help is that, yeah, you are capable of these terrible things. Like, recognize that. Like, you have to tame the monsters. Like, people with addiction issues, there's a monster there, right? It's, there's something you have to slay, slay, slaying the beast. Gotcha. I guess I would kind of, I, I would give a little bit of a caveat there. So, basically, to dis- make a distinction between two things that are often referred to as the shadow, the thing that I was referring to with the repressions, these are aspects of the self that have been shadowfied essentially they've been put they've been taken away from the conscious personality not because they're bad in fact all aspects are inherently neutral within the self but because they have been for whatever reason unable to hold space with the the conscious personality because of those maybe subjective judgments about worldview and ego and or because of the traumas and the unmet needs so those aspects can end up down in the shadow but in the integration of them they tend to come up into their more exalted form so from the shadow they tend to express in very denigrated ways. And they can lead us into some very unhealthy kind of behaviors when they're in the shadow. Whereas to actually have that, that element of resolve, you know, and you heal this aspect, you'll feel a lot less pulled towards certain things. And so I would say in that regard, it doesn't always have to be that, that struggling with the monster kind of thing. Now, in terms of, let's say what I would not necessarily refer to as the shadow, but what is often referred to as the shadow is sort of the dark side of the personality. So I like to think about, okay, so if we have the collective unconscious, right, which is is sort of all 
all these instinctual knowings where all the archetypes exist. What I've experienced in plant medicine experiences before is that basically you have these two warring drives and they exist in every person. And these are not really in the shadow. They're more in the collective unconscious as archetypes. And you have this a constructive drive and you have this destructive drive. Now, the more shadow material we have, the more we have those aspects of ourselves repressed, the more the destructive drive is going to have pull over our personality. And so in a sense, integrating those aspects of ourself, which again, are neither good nor bad, you know, and integrating them makes it to where we can usually start to spiral up into better behaviors because we're not needing to cope in, in these kind of ways. And again, that destructive drive doesn't have that pull over us. But I guess what I'll outline is my, my experience with this. I'll just tell you about the experience is that I was um, back when I was 20. So this is now 12 years ago. I was, I was on ayahuasca and in that experience, oh, and again, this is coming from the backdrop of being highly identified with goodness. You know, that was like a huge part of my identity and I was always afraid of seeing anything bad in myself. And so what had happened is I got a little bit of distance from my ego structure and I recognized, oh, this is just thoughts. Like it doesn't have anything to do with a me. So I got this distance from the ego and what I was able to do is I was able to zoom out and it was almost like, and this is a metaphor. This is anything I was seeing visually or anything, but it was almost like two celestial bodies constantly clashing, always equal in strength. And one was this good drive within me that wanted everything to be so good and wanted a happy ending for everything. And then there was this like evil destructive drive. And essentially it wanted everything to burn. It wanted everyone to suffer. It, it was like the exact opposite. Right. And it even showed me this image of me shoving my thumbs into somebody's eye sockets that I actually knew and liked quite well, you know. And so and it would even like had like this almost malicious giggle. So it was almost like the the good and evil that shows up in like a cartoon where it's just pure good and pure evil for no other reason. So it's this archetype. It was playing out and I was watching it. But this time, instead of being so attached to the good drive and being caught in the mix of that, I had this distance and I was able to see from afar that, oh, this is just happening in the same way that a tree in my backyard is just happening out here. That doesn't mean anything about me. This which is going on in this inner space of mine doesn't have anything to do with the person named Emerald with this particular personality. It's just what's happening in the inner space. The inner the inner landscape is just as impersonal as the outer landscape. But whenever we have aspects that are pushed down to the shadow that we're unconscious to, they can tend to get pulled into the fold of that destructive drive and essentially start behaving in ways to cope and get their needs met that are very, uh, very harmful to us in that way. And so I would say that when it comes to the whole having to slay the beast kind of thing, I would say that it's really quite the opposite. It's that hanging back from those two drives, disidentifying with goodness or evilness, allowing that internal thing to happen because they create this beautiful energy between them, but it doesn't mean anything about you as a person. But what really is going to be helpful is becoming as conscious as you can be of that which is currently outside of your of your view relative to the parts of yourself that you've repressed, which again are neither good nor bad, they're neutral, and, and being able to integrate them and individuate them and express them in these more exalted forms. Yeah, that's, I love that perspective. And I, I love how you talked about that. That's amazing. Uh, I had experienced doing 
Well, not definitely not ayahuasca, which is highly interesting. I would love to ask you more about that because I am interested in that. Um, but I, I did a lot of NLP work on myself through past traumas, bad relationships, things like that. And I noticed when I would do these visualization exercises, I would vi revisiting the height of those traumas would like you were talking about sparked the emotion, triggered the emotion. And then going through that, the emotions came up and, um, and when I'm in that meditative state, it's beautiful to ride those emotions out and become being in that witness. And also through those visualization exercises, looking at my older self, going through the trauma and being disassociated, looking awareness, awareness, which I, I always talk about like that's so crucial for like recoveries like being aware of like what happened what did you do to be in that situation in the first place what would you do instead you know learning that lesson learning the lesson so your unconscious says hey you know you know i don't need to hold on to this anymore because like the reason why i was holding on to it is it was something that has yet to been understood right this this there's this movie, there's this image in the unconscious that has been stored there. And the unconscious brings it up because it's like, hey, you know, pay attention to me. You know, this is something you haven't learned yet and you got to learn the lesson, got to learn the lesson. So each time I do this visualization exercise, I would, you know, I'd get the emotion, I would cry and it would be like this huge weight has been lifted from my shoulders because I, I went and revisited, but also like you were saying, the awareness of it's like look what happened look what happened at that that moment that that caused you the trauma um so that you know that's uh my journey with um those visualization processes and in, in that shadow aspect of myself amazing and uh, how was the ayahuasca experience for you i have to ask Gotcha. So I've had um, four uh, ayahuasca experiences Amazing. in my life. Yeah. So two when I was 20, uh, one when I was 30 and one when I was 31. Um, so each one were, it was very different. Um, and each one gave me a lot of insights. And I, what my experience has been is that the spirit behind the plant really gives you exactly what it is that you need. And what was interesting is in the last ceremony that I had done, there were a lot of people there and some people didn't have an experience at all. And so, you know, and basically talking to different people, it felt like the experiences were very specifically selected to them. And before I hadn't had a lot of people around me doing it. So I didn't have that perspective before. And so my experiences with it have been honestly, very earth shattering. My life would be totally different right now had I totally done it different in a worse way, but it's also been challenging, you know, so there are definitely some dangers to it. I know when I was 20, the first time I had done the ayahuasca is that it sort of opened my perspective up. Like, so if my consciousness was the size of a golf ball, it, it opened it up to the size of the universe and then it closed it back up to, again to the size of a golf ball. And so in that other consciousness state afterward, there was a lot of understanding things through the old way that I would think about things. 
understanding things through my old framework. And what would happen is that because these were essentially different paradigms, I kind of tried to make myself a non-self. So for example, like in the recognition that my ego, uh, and I didn't call it the ego at the time, I I called it like, you know, my identity or something, you know, so like my identity is that the enemy is basically what I came to the conclusion of. And I started to fight that. And I would try to do things to embarrass myself to try to like kill my identity. And, you know, and, you know, so things like this, you know, where I would take the insights of the experience and misunderstand it through my lens that hadn't yet been properly primed for the experience. So the first two were really premature. They, they really broke apart my entire paradigm. You know, I was in my very earliest years of my adulthood and I had to kind of, it knocked down all those great blocks I had built up for myself as a teenager and I had to build everything up again. And it was a trying experience. So it's definitely not something to take lightly, you know, and I did not know that going into it. I was like, oh, let's try this and I'll see some cool colors. But but yeah, it was like, oh, no, it's God. And like everything's like very different. But, you know, but what was good is that I got the experience of oneness and unconditional love. And, you know, there were so many insights that rose up and I recognized how much self-violence I was doing by being so judgmental and pushing all these parts of myself away. And those many of those aspects that I pushed away just immediately came back and integrated because I was the type that I had created this very specific persona for myself. And I was trying so hard to fit that, that I would cut everything out that didn't fit that narrow persona. And so it was such a a strong shattering, you know, and, and so then after that, I went 10 years without doing ayahuasca and then it just called to me and there were many synchronicities that came up and I did a ceremony when I was 30. That was a very trying experience. You know, the two experiences I had when I was 20 were like just beautiful dips in the Elysian waters, even though they were challenging in the aftermath. This was reality being ripped at it seems, you know, I had to die, you know, like so the very first part of the experience I died and I had to let go and let go and let go and my body fell apart and I, I merged with the infinite and like was you know, look, it was a really intense experience. I'm going further than that, but, but, but yeah, so it was really intense. And, and the next day after the ceremony, all of my trauma was up at the surface in my body. And it was like, I'd always had trouble with being up in my head a lot, but it was like, because all that trauma was up at the surface, it's almost like my consciousness was trying to run away from my body. And I felt like reality was really thin, like a soap bubble. And there was all this anxiety. So that was a really intense experience, very valuable, but very intense, you know? And then this past year, it was easier, you know, and there was more of a connection to the spirit of the ayahuasca and it was moving my body and, and working things out and bringing stuff up to the surface for me to kind of labor through emotionally. So there, it, first thing it started to do was like move my neck from side to side. And then after a while, it brought up this really sour emotion, you know, and so it brought me into this really sour, painful emotion. And then it would give me a break almost like, and this is not something you'll be able to relate to, but it was like labor, you know, so where it's like, it's really, really difficult, you know, for a moment, you know, and really, really painful. And then you get a relief until a minute later, and then it comes back up and then you get relief. And so this is what it was doing with that emotion. And then once I was able to clear and purge some of that emotion, which, you know, usually comes as like a shaking of the body or even a vomiting in in that scenario. um, Basically, I got to this point where I was like really open and I could really experience that unconditional love and many judgments were dropping away and and that kind of thing. So that's just kind of a snapshot of of what I experienced in my, my four 
my four experiences. That's like the ultimate journey into the unknown. You know, like I do breathing exercises, which are powerful enough, but I can't imagine going so deep in and opening up the whole, like the, the ball metaphor, just opening up your consciousness. But that's amazing. Well, Emerald, I, thank you. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but it's been an hour and uh, I could talk to you for a lot longer. Uh, so I hope uh, that someday you can come back and we can talk more. Um, for those who want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Yeah, so you can go to uh, YouTube. My channel is called The Diamond Net. Um, also, um, and I'll give you a link for this to put down below if people want to check out my shadow integration masterclass. I have a 60-minute masterclass all about like how to structure your own shadow work practice. It's totally free. And basically you can you go in and there's six main steps that I use. And I, I go in to explain some of the things that I've explained in the video as well, you know, but other things too. Yeah. So they can connect to me through there or on the diamond net. Um, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, really, you're welcome. Really thank you for having me on. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Brad's Powerful Anxiety Recovery Program is now available at unpluganxiety.com. The Anxiety Project Program is downloadable and puts the power of anxiety recovery in your own hands. Visit unpluganxiety.com for more details. Recovery 